Okay, sounds good. Great. Um, so welcome everybody to the first uh, meeting of the Israel Studies Seminar this term. Um, my name is Lisa Simon, and I'm going to be co-convening the seminar with uh, Professor Yaakov Yadgar. Um, and today we're very excited to host our first speaker. Um, so uh, Tuesday Rosemar will be talking about the Islamic movement in Israel. Um, and Tuesday is uh, an assistant professor in the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Zayed University in Dubai. Um, and she has been teaching there since 2015. Um, she obtained her PhD in Middle Eastern Studies from the University in Oslo in 2008, and she also holds an MST in Hebrew and Jewish Studies from Oxford, so welcome back to Oxford. Um, her research has focused on collective identity formation and religio-political and cultural movements by and for Israeli Jews from the Middle East and North Africa, uh, and by and for Palestinian citizens of Israel. Um, so we'll hear um, uh, from Tilda, and then we'll have obviously some time for questions and answers. Over to you. Great, thank you so much. Uh, and thank you, both Jakub and Alisa, for you know, arranging this and uh, welcoming me here. I was also going to say thank you to you know, someone from the Middle East Center for hosting me, if, uh, but now I've said it on the record, so, <laughs> so it ticked that box. Uh, it is a pleasure to be back here uh, 20 years after I started my MST in Hebrew and Jewish studies. Um, and then, as we have been discussing, my uh, early research focused on the generally lesser-known Mizrahi Jews. Uh, and today, I'm speaking also about something which is generally lesser-known, which is the Islamic movement in Israel, uh, for and by a lesser-known part of the Palestinian population or a people, which is Palestinian citizens uh, of Israel. So the Islamic movement uh, in Israel was established uh, in the early 1980s. Um, my analysis uh, of this movement is based on ethnographic research, composed of mostly interviews, observations, uh, and they're conducted between 2008 and 2021. Uh, and then the last couple of years, uh, because of uh, COVID, it was via Zoom or uh, email. Uh, so, in this analysis, uh, I have purposefully uh, used a very sort of contextualized approach. So, I have studied and interpreted my observations of this movement, its activists and its supporters within their social, political, cultural and religious reality. So, I believe that the context explains why a particular Islamist movement has developed in the way that it has basically sort of how it became what it is today. Um, so this movement's uh, leaders, they operate between what we can say is two main points of reference. There's the Israeli state uh, and society in which it operates, and then it is the Islamist ideology that informs its methodology and approach. So as other Islamist groups, uh, this movement is also inspired by and aims to infuse here, in theory, the state and, in practice, the society with Islam interpreted to fit modern circumstances. Uh, as Ayubi explained, Islamists want a cultural revolution inspired by religious sources and that this is in part a reaction to the westernization of their Muslim rulers and politics. Now, of course, in the case of the Palestinian Islamists in Israel, the rulers are the government of the Jewish Israeli state, and the state represents then both the political domination and westernization. So I argue that in the case of the Islamic movement in Israel, Islamism is not only an ideology and methodology for cultural advancement and renewal, 
but it is also a variant of a Palestinian political nationalism. So the Islamic movement in Israel is fighting for its rights as a Palestinian national minority group using an Islamist approach and methodology. And this is very evident in their trifecta of goals, which is to protect the Palestinian people, protect the Palestinian land, and protect the Palestinian holy sites from the foreign Jewish state. Uh, and I will describe these specific goals in detail in a, in a short while. So, I argue that Islamist groups and movements are never the same, as each case then, of course, is influenced by and somehow accommodated to its particular context. And this might seem very obvious to us, but actually it's uh, conducting contextualized analysis, particularly of Islamist groups and movements, is very important because, uh, and significantly, too often, Islamist movements are seen as a general expression of an ideology or practice cutting across place and time without appreciations of the nuances and local reasoning for their individual development. So in this case, the context, of course, then Israeli state and society, and this, of course, has naturally and tremendously influenced the development of this particular movement, both in terms of providing opportunities and in terms of imposing limitations. My analysis aims to explain how then the leaders and activists of this movement take advantage of the possibilities provided as well as navigate the limitations provided by this context. And also how they then interpret and instrumentalize the Islamist theory and practice in pursuit of their particular aims. So therefore, it's important to start with a brief description of the predicament and situation of Palestinian citizens uh, in Israel. I'm just gonna move. So Palestinian citizens of Israel uh, are the descendants of the about 150,000 Palestinians who remained into, in what became the state of Israel in 1948. Today, there are approximately 1.5 and 1.6 million people or you can say that they make up around 20% of the Israeli population. And so their inferior position uh, in this state as non-Jewish Arab Palestinian citizens is very well documented. And they are described by both academics and by Israeli as well as international NGOs uh, as second-class citizens who are treated unequally in almost every respect when compared to the state's Jewish citizens. In addition, they're considered to be a potential internal threat due to their Arab-Palestinian identity. So, for example, according to the legal human rights organization Adala, they face indirect and direct discrimination in the legal system and in governmental practices. This has obviously be become even more pronounced after the Jewish nation-state law, which was introduced in 2018, which formally made Palestinian citizens second-class citizens. So it is within the boundaries and opportunities afforded as citizens of Israel and the limitation then imposed by this political system that the Islamic movement has developed and is conducting its activism. The, so this Islamic movement is established by leaders who were educated in West Bank Islamic colleges that became available to them after Israel occupied these areas as well as other areas as a consequence of the 1967 war. So this war, as we know, had negative consequences for Palestinians in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, but it also had unintended and surprisingly positive consequences for Palestinian citizens. 
Why? Because from 1948 till 1967, Palestinian citizens were living under a military rule which uh, had uh, included a lot of restrictions, such as curfew, not being allowed to organize politically, uh, as well as restrictions on up employment opportunities. And in addition, it meant that they were isolated from the Arab world generally and from their Palestinian brethren who were in particularly in the West Bank in the Gaza Strip or in any other Arab country, as Arab countries was considered enemy states of Israel. So after 1967, Palestinians from inside Israel uh, suddenly gained access to both the people and the institutions in the West Bank and in the Gaza Strip. So the former head of the southern branch of the Islamic movement, don't worry, we'll talk about the branch, branching later, uh, Ibrahim Sarsoud, he described the result of the 1967 war as the beginning of the Arab population inside Israel, despite the devastating military defeat for the Arab states and the ensuing occupation. So this was because from then on, Palestinians from inside Israel could go to the West Bank, also the Gaza Strip, and access uh, Islamic and Arab educational institutions and culture that they had so far been, um, been prohibited to access. So then we had young men and some women uh, who went there, got educated and returned to their towns and villages inside Israel and they began to uh, provide study circles, they gave sermons and they kind of started what was the grassroots beginning of the Islamic awakening which led to the Islamic movement inside Israel. Um, so it is in the early 1970s that we can observe the beginning of this small religious grassroots oriented initiatives that grew into the movement that we know today. The focus then was on Dawah, so sort of spreading their version of Islam, for, uh, first to the individuals, then the larger communities, and then the, you know, they hope the society at large. So the aim was to strengthen the faith and observance of the individual and the sort of practice and observance of the Palestinian Muslim community inside Israel. Uh, then, so I would, I say that in 1980, I say, we know that in 1983, Sheikh Abdallah Nimr founded the movement as we know it today. Some people would say the movement started earlier, some people would have another date. But uh, this is a date that I think is the best to used as the starting point of the institutionalization of the Islamic movement in Israel. Uh, and he started as explicitly as a non-violent and countrywide socio-cultural political movement. So as I mentioned earlier, there's this trifecta of goals. Uh, so the three goals are focus on protection. So protection of people, protection of land and protection of religious sites mainly inside Israel, but also in the occupied East Jerusalem, West Bank and Gaza Strip. So when we talk first then about people. So the, the Islamic movement in Israel, they assist Palestinian citizens in many diverse charity uh, campaigns to supply school materials, food, financial support for orphans, widows, uh, many other type uh, initiatives. Uh, and also, they focus on generally sort of improving the services for Palestinian citizens that are not provided satisfactorily by the state. So they do this on a local level, through local councils, or via the movement's many social and cultural organizations. So they run kindergartens, food distribution to poor families, uh, education organizations that offer tutoring to complement the national school system or to provide 
them with training to get into the university. As you would know, it's really difficult to pass the university uh, entry exams. Uh, they provide income for uh, single parents uh, and also social and cultural uh, uh, organizations for you know, spare time and free time activities. Uh, so in addition to facing legal restrictions, uh, loss of land and properties and lack of equal opportunities, uh, as many other representatives of the Palestinian citizens, the Islamic movement also consider Palestinian citizens, so is it around this sort of protection, to be under real physical danger. So protection of people goes to sort of taking care of them in their everyday life, as well as actually uh, potentially... Um, or addressing their danger that they face, uh, that they consider to be uh, physical dangers. So when I interviewed uh, both leaders and activists of the Islamic movement, they typically will focus then uh, on what they perceive as dangers towards Palestinian citizens, including the threat of population transfer. This is a method to deal with the idea that Palestinian citizens constitute a demographic threat to the Jewish state and is promoted by right-wing Israeli politicians. Uh, they talked about the reality of the anti-Arab discourse, such as uh, demonstrations in Jerusalem this fall where people were shouting death to Arabs, or this is also regularly chanted at football games, politicians such as Benjamin Netanyahu who talk about the threat of the Arab voters, or uh, any, many politicians who talk, Israeli politicians who will talk about Arab politicians as traitors, so it's sort of the, on the discourse level. Uh, then they also mentioned the dangers of the violent actions by a group of Jewish citizens. For example, they mentioned the 2008 Akka riots uh, or the 2014 so-called um, violent price tag crimes, which was both against individual Palestinians and also against Palestinian property. Another and important element uh, which was highlighted in these conversations was the police violence, especially after the killing of 13 Palestinian citizens by Israeli police in the early days of the Second Intifada in 2000. So the Islamic movement then worked alongside and sometimes in collaboration with other organizations that represent Palestinian citizens to prevent these threats or assist Palestinian citizens kind of after uh, after any of, you know, uh, any of these events, so victims mainly, such as rebuilding houses or repairing properties after uh, destruction. Uh, and in practice, what they do is that they use this Islamist uh, um, idea where you uh, volunteer your, not just sort of, you know, you don't just uh, contribute zakat, but you support the organization by volunteering your time uh, and your uh, expertise. So for example, when they were rebuilding houses, some, a lot of people would come just to kind of contribute with their manpower, but the guy who was the engineer would come and build the house, and the person who had the bulldozer would drive long way with his bulldozer to, you know. So it's all for free in all sort of volunteer work camp type uh, ideology, which is very grassroots. Uh, in addition, the movement also focuses on the 400,000 or so Palestinians in occupied East Jerusalem who are residents but not citizens of Israel. This group is under increasing political as well as socioeconomic pressure. Uh, they 
are cut off from their Palestinian natural sort of Palestinian communities in the West Bank due to the separation wall and the checkpoint system. And so to improve their financial situation, the Islamic movement encourages its supporters from inside Israel, we could say, to go shopping and use the restaurants uh, in East Jerusalem to provide needed income for this group. This is tied to, to my next point, protection of the religious sites. Uh, so how it works is that one of the things that is important to the Islamic movement is that on a, on a weekly, if not daily basis, Palestinians pray at the Al-Aqsa Mosque. I'll talk more in detail about the Al-Aqsa Mosque soon, but one of the things they do is to provide free bus services from almost any Palestinian local village, town or city inside Israel to take, bring them to Jerusalem so they can go and pray at the Al-Aqsa Mosque, but also shopping in East Jerusalem, so sort of combines... Uh, the two goals in one. Uh, so the protection of religious sites then obviously focus on Al-Aqsa. In addition, they try to document um, uh, and as well as to challenge the cons the, what has been done and the consistent demolition and other uses of uh, religious property inside Israel. So, for example, there are some mosques uh, that have been turned into other purpose buildings, such as even a nightclub uh, in Tel Aviv. So the Islamic movement would then challenge this in the court and sort of try to uphold uh, the religious uh, properties and identities of these places of worship. They also protect and document Palestinian graveyards uprooted since 1948. Uh, where also uh, they have been now uh, rezoned for other purposes. And then, of course, the Al-Aqsa. So the Al-Aqsa is uh, the way that the Islamic movement sees it, under the threat, threat from Israeli security forces, uh, from right-wing Israeli politicians and religious and, and settler groups, and uh, especially the so-called temple movement that is working to rebuild the temple and to change the status quo established in 1967 that preserves the right to pray on the Temple Mount or Haram al-Sharif to Muslims. Now, as this mosque, of course, is the third holiest site in Islam, by acting as its guardians, the Islamic movement also positions itself at one of the religious centers of not just the Muslim, but also the, so the Muslim, but also then, of course, the Jewish world as it borders the Wailing Wall. So the movement is active in the actual upkeeping of the mosque, physically, uh, practically. Uh, and also, uh, one, every year, the movement arranges a festival called the Al-Aqsa is in Danger Festival. It's not a fun festival, <laughs> that way that we think of festivals. Um, but it's a gathering, uh, so the northern branch, we'll talk more about the branches later, but the northern branch would have yearly one in Ramal, uh, in Mulfaham until 2015. They would uh, hold speeches and rally support for the continued protection of the mosque. And this festival is uh, every year attended also by Christian clerics and uh, representatives of other um, groups that represent uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel. So it's not just an Islamic movement, uh, I mean, it's an Islamic movement initiate, initiative, but it is supported uh, by a broader segment of the Palestinian, uh, both inside Israel and uh, in East Jerusalem. The concern and focus on Al-Aqsa is of course very significant. Also these days we've just seen the violent fighting now between armed Israeli police and Palestinian civilians on the compound during this past Ramadan and currently there are lots of violence going on in uh, occupied West Bank. Uh, then the third focus was the focus on land, so the protection of land. Um, 
mainly stopping further annexation and confiscation of land. Of course, land is at the very, very heart of the conflict between Israel and the Palestinians. So today, in the main focus of the Islamic movement uh, as regards land is the protection of the Palestinian people in the Negev Nakab uh, that, are, um, that the state is trying to, in a process of appropriating using different methods and schemes. Uh, and they're also working against house and home demolition in occupied East Jerusalem, as well as inside Israeli towns and villages uh, in Israel. They're very active in the Land Day demonstration that happened every year uh, in, since 1976 in April. And in fact, the young leaders, these young educated, particularly men who came back in the 70s, were among the first people to initiate uh, the uh, Land Day demonstrations by Palestinians in Israel. In addition to these three goals, the Islamic movement works to promote an Arab-Palestinian Muslim identity among Palestinian citizens, and this is to offset the process of Israelization. So let's talk about that. Israelization can be seen as a short, very briefly, as a, as a two-prone process. Uh, Sami Smoha has defined it as the natural process of being influenced by the culture and language of the majority since 1948. Uh, whereas Nadim Rahana has then added uh, and a bit more critically, that calls it an approach by the state to make Palestinian citizens more Israeli than, through a Zionist focus in education that aim, aims to make them more acquiescent citizens. Uh, for, for the Islamic movement, they are kind of attacking or responding to both of these uh, prones, so to speak, uh, and they want to lessen, of course, their influences. How they do that is that they try to improve the level of Arabic among Palestinian citizens, especially formal Arabic because they live in a Hebrew-speaking state and society and almost all higher education institutions are operating in Hebrew. They also are very careful to tell or insistent on telling the Palestinian young generation the Palestinian historical narrative because this is of course not taught in the school, uh, state school system where they are educated and where the curriculum is focused on the Zionist narrative. And then, of course, Islam. But they're not just teaching Islam in order to Islamize, which they, of course, are. But it's also because in between 48 and 1967, there were very little available material to teach Islam, and no teachers were sort of re-educated to teach Islam. So generally, we see among the Palestinian population inside Israel that they have a sort of a, a knowledge gap of Islam uh, across the whole population and they're trying to sort of bridge that gap. So gradually this movement has built a network of religious and social institutions across Israel catering to the needs of its constituencies such as nurseries, social clubs, health facilities, after-school education organizations, soup kitchens, association for women, art and religious organization. And it is through its steadily growing network of these self-reliant institutions that are mainly paid for by Zakat and also some foreign donors. I can't tell you more about them because I simply don't know because I'm not given that information, but they do exist. But of course, everything has to go through Israeli banks and financial systems, so they can't be that um, suspicious, I suppose. Uh, anyway, so the Islamic movement then, uh, from the mid-1980s began to participate in local elections. The movement entered the political arena in 1983 when it partook in local elections in the town of Kufrbara, and in 1989 they participated in several local elections and won several seats. 
Again, Ibrahim Sarsour, previous leader of one of the branches, described this as a peaceful Islamic revolution in Israel. It's quite a nice quote. Uh, it has since run various municipalities and seen members gain power in several local authorities. And it is important to know that the local political arena is, has historically, since the end of the military government in 1966, been the most important political stage for Palestinian citizens, as this is the level which directly relate to their everyday lives. So through their influence, uh, on local councils, they can work to improve services directly for their constituencies, such as water supply, sewage system, garbage services, roads, public parks and garden, and, and social services. So what the movement has done is that it has used its newly political gained power since the 1980s to improve, directly improve the lives of the Palestinians. And they're very popular at doing that, because compared to other politicians on the local level among the Palestinian community, they are seen as unrelated to Israeli Zionist political parties. They're seen as uncorrupt on a sort of individual level. They're seen as not related to or trying at least, and in the case of Omar Fahim, largely succeeding uh, to distance themselves from this old Khan-based political uh, structure. And also they're seen as getting the job done. This I heard from many uh, when I interviewed Israeli organizations, a representative of Israeli bureaucracy, that the Palestinian towns and villages that were run majoritively by Islamist uh, leaders were the well, most functioning. Uh, they, you know, they, they, did, they, they got the job done, basically, so people were happy. So it is based on this the trifecta of goals and the religious, ethnic, national identity promoted by this movement in combination with this grassroots and political activism that I describe the movement's leaders and activists as Islamist Palestinian nationalists. Let that sink in. Uh, the movement then split in 1996 due to the disagreement of whether or not to stand for national elections for the Israeli parliament, the Knesset. The northern branch, and now it comes, said no, arguing that it was not permissible to enter a non-Muslim political system and that such a participation meant a recognition of the Zionist character of the state. They also meant that as Islamists, they could not enter a non-Muslim um, uh, non system. They didn't say non-Sharia, but non-Muslim system. The southern branch, on the other hand, argued that there was room for political compromise with non-Muslim actors when this constitutes the local political context and when this is the best way in which to promote and protect the rights and interests of the native Palestinians. So since 1996, there has therefore been two branches, the northern and the southern. These names only refer to the seat of the leaders and the sort of main city villages uh, of the two branches, but across the country, it's not like in the north, everyone are with the northern branch, and in the south, everyone are in the southern. It's all a mix, and I would say every locality will have people who support both. So it's not. Uh, it's only because Shahra Salah comes from Umm Fahim, which is north of Kufr Qasim, where uh, Darwish Shah Darwish came from. Generally, these two places would be mostly northern and southern, but generally, but it's not, not a rule as such. Um, so, since, uh, yes, and from 1996, the southern branch has participated in national elections and has had representatives in the Israeli parliament on a list that it's called United Arab List. 
or ra'am in Hebrew, often alongside uh, where it often on this, so this is you know a, a multi-party system, and they often on the list they would sometimes have other political parties representing Palestinian citizens with them on the list, uh, but sometimes not. It's a little bit confusing uh, coalition politics like this. So as an indication, though, of the popularity of this list, it was the largest list representing this constituency between 2009 and 2015. The northern branch, on the other hand, has only participated in local elections, mostly in the town of Umm al-Fahim, and only until 2013. Then um, this branch has been under increasing pressure from the government, and its leader, Shahrad Salah, has been convicted in Israeli courts on several occasions uh, for connections with Hamas, the Islamist organization in the Gaza Strip and the occupied territories, for inciting violence and for spitting at an officer. All charges he denies. The split caused a lot of turmoil in the movement and among its supporters, especially when I interviewed student activists, they were very much against the split and they thought it was a huge distraction from their actual joint goals and activism and they would have liked to see a reunification. There has been talks of reunifications and attempts, but it never came to anything. And things that are mentioned as problematic is, of course, now, the, since it's since 1996, the institutionalization of the split. I'll talk about that soon. As well as the fight over who's going to be the leader when you have sort of two structures of leaders. And the fact that the leadership style between the two branches is very different. So the southern branch has new elections for leader every four years, whereas the northern branch has kept the leaders since 1996 and onwards. So these are some of the differences uh, that cause uh, these discussions not to bear any fruit. Um, so basically, uh, on the grassroots level, what has happened is that uh, we have what, the creation of what I call mirrored organization. So these, all these organizations that cater to the needs of the population, now we have one for the southern, one for the northern. So you have one Al-Aqsa is in danger festival in Umar Faham and one in Kufr Qasim. You have one association for youth uh, for the northern branch and one for the southern branch. So that's also at campus level, uh, Israeli universities, you will have two organizations representing Islamist student interest, not one. Uh, so basically, these mirrored organizations compete over both supporters as well as funding. Now, since the split, uh, most academic writing and media reporting on the movement would describe the northern branch as radical for its rejection to participate in the national election, and I assume also due to the more vocal and direct language of its leaders, Surat Salah and Kamal Khatib, uh, and it describes the southern branch as moderate because of its participation and the more conciliatory approach, especially as practiced by the first leader, Sahra Abdallah bin Darwish, who was quite active in interreligious dialogue uh, and often participated in Israeli media, speaking Hebrew, and was sort of very much um, seen as an, as an open-minded uh, Palestinian uh, representative. Now, I disagree with this terminology. I don't find it very helpful. Uh, I find that it is invested with meaning associated with other Islamist movements and thus implying ideological stands and political conduct that doesn't necessarily reflect these two branches. Uh, and also, I think it's unhelpful because there is no agreed upon definition of what does it mean moderate or what does it mean radical? How do we measure it? And therefore, like anyone, me, the writer, or you, the reader, hopefully, <laughs> can you know, put into it any content that you find fit, and we might not even agree on what we're talking about. And then it, I think it just leads to more confusion rather than more understanding. So therefore, um, 
Uh, and, you know, if you're saying that people are moderate, is it because of their acceptance of democratic principles? Is it liberal rights, rejection of violence? Uh, or is, are we talking about the reaction to state ideology or practices or interpretations of Islam? And in which case, if we're talking about what is radical Islam, is it often it's described as being determined by the threat that an Islamist group is adjudged to pose. The question is, who is it posing this threat to and how do we consider any group a threat? Like, where are these lines? Therefore, I suggest uh, that both of these branches are pragmatic. Why? Because both have adjusted their ideology as well as their practice to fit into the Israeli state and society context. They follow the state law. And until 2013, both branches partook in the election system and in the state bureaucracy. Of course, then the northern branch only on the local level and the southern branch on the local and national level. Both are nonviolent, and they modify their Islamist goal to the context. I, this is interesting when I was interviewing, again, this is... Uh, Ibrahim Sarsoud, we were talking about, you know, what is your actual goal as, as an Islamist? He said, you know, theoretically, my goal is an Islamist state, but how could I have an Islamist state when I'm in the minority? If I wake up tomorrow and all the Jews converted to Islam, ahlan wa sahlan, and then, we, you know, we can promote our Sharia state, but this is not a reality, so why would I even, it's not practical to think about it. Uh, in their practice, the two branches are not that different, except from their stance on national elections. Both of them offer the same social, cultural, educational and religious services. Leaders of both are vocal in response to Israeli actions, both inside Israel, but also in the occupied territories. And both support charity organizations in the occupied Palestinian territories, some of which are related and associated with Hamas, simply because Hamas controls whatever happens in the Gaza Strip. Uh, there might also be other reasons, we can discuss that later. For example, also, uh, both leaders of, leaders of both the branches were on the flotilla, these boats that go to Gaza to, to help and support in 2010, but only Raed Salah of the northern branch was given media attention inside Israel, whereas Abu Dhabi's law ahead of the southern branch, nobody mentioned him. So the, and this is a typical pattern, so the branch that is sort of branded as radical gets all the attention in the reporting. I believe a more accurate description of the differences between them is to call the northern branch isolationist, especially since 2013, where it has become extremely explicit because it no longer participates in local elections. Uh, when I interviewed some leaders in 2015, before it was outlawed, I asked, why, why did you choose to stop participating in elections, especially in 2013, because they were set to win. And in fact, their mayoral candidate chose to still participate in election and stood as an independent and did win the elections. Uh, anyway, the leaders said that they had thought about it and they felt that they wanted to focus on activism, religious and social, and they felt bugged down, is a sort of a translation, I think, of, by um, party politics, and they felt that they were splitting the Palestinian people rather than uniting them, and they didn't want to be part of this, uh, this political scene anymore. Now, the southern branch I described as integrationist. Uh, it is working within the system to try to change it, and this has become even more pronounced recently, which I will address soon. 2015 brought two watershed moments for the movement. The most dramatic was the outlawing of the northern branch. Then Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu argued that this branch has undermined the state, incited to violence, and had ties with Hamas. So, according to my interviewees in the branch, after the outlawing, of course, the, this came as a shock. 
they were waiting for something quite big and maybe closing some some people being arrested or closing down a part of the organization they were not prepared for a total outlawing as a consequence all of these organizations that have described that cater to the you know needs of the palestinians inside they were all outlawed so thousands of people working in these organizations were made unemployed overnight the state had not thought about this did not expect them to show up at the unemployment office the day after uh, did not have any idea how many people these organizations uh, employed. And many more thousands, of course, then lost all of these uh, educational, social, supportive or, you know, uh, uh, organizations that they used in their everyday lives. Palestinian citizens across the country and across the political and religious spectrum protested, calling the decision a political draconian measure to divide and rule this minority. No one from the northern branch were charged with any criminal offenses, but... Uh, the leader, Sheikh Razala, has since been imprisoned twice for incitement to violence, and he was last released in December 2021. Also in 2015, the North, uh, Southern Branch joined the new parliamentarist, parliamentarist called the Joint List. The Joint List includes many ideological currents and is unified only by the centralizing force of the ethnic minority identity and status of Palestinian citizens. And interestingly, the original idea of... Uh, Sheikh Darwish, when he wanted to join elections in 1996, was to join in one list with all Palestinian uh, representatives. He never wanted an Islamist party. Uh, anyway, the joint list from 2015 was very successful. It had 13 of 120 seats in 2015 and 2019, and then 15 seats in the 2020 election, which doesn't sound that much if you don't appreciate how many parties, political parties there are in Israel, but it made it the third largest list in the parliament. This is huge. Despite this success, in February last year, the southern branches, uh, United Arab List, Ram, that we talked about, split from the joint list under the new leadership of Mansour Abbas. Abbas uh, also then made close contact with right -wing, the right-wing Likud party under Netanyahu during 2020. And the idea was that Ram would support Netanyahu in his new coalition. Uh, however, Netanyahu didn't manage to establish a coalition. And in June 2021, the southern branch surprisingly joined the new Bennett-Lapid coalition. This is only the second time in history that an Arab party is in any government uh, coalition in Israel but without ministerial positions. Um, and Abbas said he refused that because he would, thought it would be too embarrassing to walk around with secure, which you would have to have if you're a minister, sort of Israeli security before and behind you all the time. He said it wouldn't do him any good. Now, why did Abbas choose to take the southern branch's political party into the Israeli coalition? He argues that it is in order to get more for his constituency. And he was promised many millions earmarked for development of Arab communities uh, inside Israel. And also was promised the recognition of three Bedouin unrecognized villages uh, in the Negev Nakab. Uh, which would provide these villages with basic infrastructure that since 1948 they have not had, such as water, sewage, electricity, roads, schools, and health clinic. According to Abbas, the reasons for his position is that now, as part of actual coalition, Palestinian citizens have political influence, and the southern branch is the new sort of kingmaker in Israeli politics, not just an ignored oppositional party. 
He argued that he can use this position to secure funding for this constituency and to prove actual situation of Palestinian citizens, particularly as it comes to planning, housing, fight violence, organized, and organized crime in the community, in addition to the previously mentioned issues. These decisions, and Abbas, as the leader of uh, the Islamist party, uh, has caused a lot of controversy. It has been exacerbated by his comment that Israel is a Jewish state legally and demographically, uh, which has been a comment widely criticized by Palestinian citizens across the political and religious spectrum. Um, and also, uh, it was controversial that this spring he decided to stay in the coalition despite the fighting on the Haram al-Sharif Temple Mount uh, compound. At the moment, of course, Israel is now heading to its fifth election in two years. Um, and uh, we're not sure, but Abbas and the, the party, the Rizra, might be able to get above the threshold and get three or five, maybe, uh, members of Knesset. It remains to be seen. In the informal conversations I've had with Palestinian citizens now recently, uh, I get, a, I get a, an idea that a lot of people who wouldn't necessarily boycott elections will boycott elections because they're unimpressed with all of their representatives and they want to give them a proper hint that, you know, we're not happy and you don't deserve our votes. Yet, Abbas seems to have um, and keep the support of, of his own southern branch of the Islamic movement uh, by among the voters, as well as the Shura Council, which is the sort of legislative council of the southern branch's uh, political and uh, organizational structure. So, in conclusion, my publication comes at a time when the southern branch of the Islamic movement is at the heart of the current political development and public debate in Israel, whereas the northern branch features when its leaders are imprisoned or let out of prison or something <laughs> says something controversial. But both branches are in the news, so they're kind of in the news for the opposite reasons, uh, you could say, in a way, the integrationist and, and uh, isolationist. Uh, and as such, I hope and think my book is quite timely and that you will have time to engage with it. Thank you.